Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website well, at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. By Melbourne and Doha, it's been really great to be with you guys. I've so enjoyed my time here. You're just a great church, a responsive group of people. And uh, when Jackie and I were talking last night, she said, well, she said, I'm really looking forward to coming to New Zealand. So uh, she's excited about that. All the things that she needed to do, she's got done in the last few months. So, uh, And for those of you who don't know, my wife actually grew up in New Zealand. So um, they emigrated to Australia when she was five, and then they didn't like that. It was too hot. They were out in Perth, and if you've ever been out to Perth, it's, it's really hot. And uh, they were out in the sticks. They weren't out in the city. So um, then at the age of eight, they emigrated to Wellington, and so from the age of eight till she was 18, she grew up in Wellington. Uh, and so, yeah, she, when I married my wife, she, it was really funny. My kids loved to listen to the vows that we exchanged. I, Jiki, take you, Peter, to be my lawful, wedded husband. <laughs> it's just great. I, I, you know, the, the real Kiwi voice is coming out there. I remember the first time I met her, she said to me, uh, do you have a pin? And I said, no, I don't keep pins on me. <laughs> no, not a pin, a pin. Uh, I, I said, uh, I'm not getting this. You know, a writing pin. And I goes, oh, a pen. <laughs> what is that? E's become I's. A's become U's. I mean, it's just really interesting, this language. I won't say any more because you like me and I don't want you to not like me. But uh, thank God for English in all its many forms. Hey, if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 12, Luke 12. And uh, I'm just going to talk a little bit more about, you know, last week we talked about how Thanksgiving really is such an antidote to anxiety and to um, so many things in life that when you're thankful for what you have, when you show appreciation, somehow it breaks the power of anxiety and things that crowd into your life that want to rob you of peace, want to rob you of enjoying the season that you're in. And one of the things I've discovered about life, and I'm, I'm sort of at the latter end, you know, there's a lot behind, there's not a lot in front. Do you know what I mean? When you reach that age, you just kind of wonder, oh, how, many, how many days are left now? Um, one of the things that, that people like me learn to appreciate is, is that Every season of life needs to be lived and enjoyed in that season. And the, the danger is, is that when you're in one season, you wish you were in another. <laughs> and even the difficult seasons are actually shaping you. And so what, what we've got to learn to do is uh, embrace the season. Paul said this, uh, when he wrote to the church, he said, all things are for your sake, when he wrote to the Corinthians, all things are for your sakes, that, that grace may abound through thanksgiving. And, and so when we're, whatever season of life you're in, whether you're in a season that you're really, really enjoying or a season that's tough, just in, posture your heart that you will cooperate with God as best as you possibly can in the season that you're in. And, and whatever you do, at the end of the day, just release some thanksgiving. Just release some thanksgiving. I mean, if you've still got breath in your lungs today, God has not finished with you. 
there's still purpose for you to fulfill. And so I want to encourage you to do that. But I just want to sort of deal with this little bit of anxiety because I think it's such a big issue. It was such a huge issue in my family, a huge issue in my own life. I don't think my mother ever really got set free from anxiety. I had to break out of something. But here's, some, here's a text, and I want to share some things this morning I think are going to really help you. So we're in Luke chapter 12. This is the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm going to read Luke's version rather than Matthew's, which is the most popular. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Now, now if you're a little bit of a fashion queen here today... There's a little statement for you right from the heart of Jesus. Uh, you know, don't be overly anxious. How many men in the room here have ever had, you said you're going to a wedding and your wife says, I've got nothing to wear. And you open the wardrobe and there's like 50 dresses. Or, you know, and, she, and, and in her head, I've got nothing to wear. Why? Because I've worn those things before and everyone's going to know that and you know, in her head, it's about having something that's fresh and new. I remember talking to a friend of mine in, in, his, in his early 30s who kept on arguing with his wife. He said, what do you mean? You got this, you could wear this, you could wear this. And I said, no, 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 that's not the way to do it, buddy. Don't, don't do that with your wife. I said, I said just look at the cupboard and cry. <laughs> and say to her, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. You don't have anything to wear. And then what she'll usually do is say, oh, don't cry. It's okay. I'll put something I've got before. <laughs> it's a great strategy. <laughs> he did that one time. It really worked. <laughs> Listen, the point is you can start to focus on things in life that are, are really not that important. They're really not that important. Now, now, listen, if you don't eat, you die, right? So, so eating's important in one sense, but you can take that to a point where it almost becomes an idol in terms of the anxiety it produces in you. It's the same with houses, it's the same with clothes, it's the same with anything in life. These are legitimate needs, but what Jesus is saying is, don't let it come to the point where that's your preoccupation every day, where that becomes your focus. That's really what he's getting at here. So he says, life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Do you get it? In, in other words, there's some things that are just more important. And so it's not that you, you shouldn't eat and you shouldn't clothe yourself, you shouldn't look good. It isn't about that. It's about what place does that have in your heart to what degree does that preoccupy your thinking? Because as we read this passage, Jesus wants something else to preoccupy our thinking. So he says this, Consider the ravens. They neither sow, they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. I mean, you know, Solomon was a fashion guru. He always looked good. He looked splendid. 
If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Let me read you that quote from Corrie ten Boom last week. You're going to love this, just in case you forgot. Here it is. Worrying is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength. Carrying two days at once. It is moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Isn't that a great quote? It doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Uh, let me give you four quick points this morning. And uh, then we're going to go and have some fun and coffee and get to know each other a little better. Is that good? Okay, here's the first point. Consider the lilies, consider the ravens of the air, consider the lilies of the field. Point number one, you have to focus on the right things. So Jesus says, don't worry about what you eat, don't worry about what you will wear. And then he says, in order to help you with that, consider the ravens of the air, consider the lilies of the field. He's saying that God takes care of those things. So in other words, if you're somebody who's plagued by anxiety, you need to step back from your world, step back from your anxiety, and you need to look at creation. And, you need to, and the whole point that Jesus is making here is that the Father is involved with his creation. And he knows exactly what you need. That's what Jesus says later on in the passage. He knows that you need these things. So in other words, we don't serve a God of ignorance. And we don't pray in order to give God information. We, we, we pray in order to engage with a father who already knows what we need. And when we pray, what we're really doing is we're really putting our vote of confidence in who God is and we're building our, that confidence and that relationship with him. So Jesus said, I want you to consider, I want you to think about just creation, the way God's hand is involved in creation. He's watching over everything. In, in fact, it says in, in the other passage in Matthew's gospel, it said even the hairs on your head are numbered. Now, for some of us, that's easy. For, for, for others, that's really complicated. But God knows. I'm, 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 yeah, it's getting thinner, but... David said this in Psalm 77, verse 12. He said this, I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. David knew to think about God's work in creation. It helped him. It says in Psalm 143, in verse 5, I will remember the days of old. I will meditate on all your works. I will muse on the work of your hands. David wrote those Psalms when he was under tremendous pressure and feeling isolated and abandoned. And he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to muse. I'm going to think about your works. Consider the lilies of the field. Isn't that beautiful? So here's my first point I want to challenge you with. What are you thinking about? Are you thinking about how to pay the bill? Are you thinking about, well, if I do this, how will this work out? Is that what your meditation is? Is that what your focus is? Or are you focusing in God's ability to take care of his creation, which includes you? Do you get it? 
So David made a choice under pressure to meditate on God's works and God's goodness, and it carried him through his moments of pressure. Do you get that? I think every single one of us need to have a disciplined mind in that kind of way. You get to choose what to think on. Philippians chapter 4 talks about this. Whatever things are true, whatever things are pure, whatever things are, are of good report, whatever things are praiseworthy, think on these things. Paul says make choices about what you let your mind focus and zone in on. Because your mind will naturally gravitate towards that which produces anxiety and stress. And there's enough of that in the world. And so I, my first challenge to you is, come on, focus on the right thing. Um, I like this quote by Edith Armstrong. I don't know if we can get it up there. Here, here's what she says. I keep the telephone of my mind open to peace, harmony, health, love, and abundance. Then whenever doubt, anxiety, or fear try to call me, they keep getting a busy signal. And soon they forget my number. That's cool, isn't it? It's clever. In other words, she's making choices about what she lets her mind focus on. And you and I need to, to make the same thing. What, what is it you're allowing your heart and your mind to meditate on? Because, you know, the, the Bible says this in the Psalms, the meditation of my heart gives understanding. And so what you focus on, ultimately you begin to understand. Here's the second point I want to make. Jesus says this. He's talking to them, and he says, of how much more value are you than the birds? So here's my second point. How much are you worth? Do you, do you know, one of the reasons why we live with so much anxiety in our lives is that we basically have low self-esteem. We struggle with a sense of personal value. And I remember growing up, you know, because we live in a world that's full of comparison all the time, when you're living in, in comparison, you either come off better than someone else, which tends to make you proud and arrogant, or you come off worse than someone else, which tends to make you insecure and fearful. So, so, so you tend to find in the world, you either find very arrogant people, and often success tends towards arrogance, or you find very insecure, fearful people. And both those extremes are incredibly unhelpful. Uh, so I remember growing up, you know, and my brother, he's two inches taller than me, good-looking Italian look on him. I got the Welsh look, he got the Italian look. How unfair is that? Yeah? And, uh, you know, he was the sporty guy who, who broke county records, and I had asthma, now, how many of you know growing up as the younger brother? That, that's a hard act to follow. You know, I got the hand-me-downs. He got everything new. And he's two inches taller than me. You know, my mother, you know, her attitude was, oh, I can turn those up. Thanks. Thanks. The shoes was the one thing I, I needed new because we were just different size shoes. You know, my father's attitude was, put some newspaper in there. I said, Dad, you know, the war ended 15 years ago. <laughs> Some of you know my pain, don't you? <laughs> but, you know, as, as, a, as the second son, you know, growing up in that kind of a household, you, you grow up with those kinds of comparisons all the time. And it's just like, you're just thinking to yourself, how will I ever measure up? You know, what about me? Where do I fit? Where's my sense of value? And I struggled with that for a long time. I struggled with it for ages. One of the things that really helped me was I realized 
that God had given me a tremendous sense of courage that my brother didn't seem to have. When I say courage, I mean madness. In other words, I would take risks he would never take. And so I remember when I, you know, I, I loved motorbikes and fast bikes, and he, he was really insecure around that, which was incredible considering he was a champion boxer and he was a county runner, but put him on a motorbike and he was scared. And I thought, great, an area I can triumph in. <laughs> and I remember, you know, getting my motorbike. And then I, it was like I used to ask him, so what are you scared of? You know, I used to have conversations with him because whatever he was scared of, I was going to do it. Uh, he, he didn't like going underwater, so I did scuba diving. <laughs> he didn't like heights, so I used to jump out of planes and be free fall parachuting. And it was really cool because for the first time when I was like 19, 20, for the first time we would be in the company of, of girls. Try, you know how many 19-year-olds always trying to impress a girl? If you're a 19-year-old kid, don't tell me you don't. That's exactly what you do. And it's amazing how girls are unimpressed, actually, with, with what guys say. But anyway, we don't know that. It takes us 30 years to discover that that doesn't work. <laughs> but I remember we were there, you know, trying to, trying to sort of impress these girls. And my brother would say, yeah, you know, I'm sort of county runner. And I'd say, yeah, I jump out of planes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, my, my brother would say, yeah, my friends drive me around, I don't have a license. I'd say, yeah, I've got a 500cc twin carburetor Triumph. Do you want to ride on it? <laughs> you know, but when, when you've had years of being the little brother who just was outshone, 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 you just, you live in this world of comparison. You live in this world of comparison. And here's the strange thing, you know, even though those things helped me, it wasn't until I met Jesus that I really found my sense of worth and value. And when I met Jesus, it kind of changed everything because I suddenly realized, you know, in the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, and it's the only time this is ever written in the New Testament, and he's the only one who says it. He says this in Galatians 2.20. He says, he loved me and gave himself for me. Every other verse in the Bible is about God so loved the world. It's, about, it's, it's very corporate. Every verse about salvation is corporate in the Bible. But Paul makes it intensely personal in Galatians chapter 2. He says, he loved me and he gave himself for me. That's a man who understands his value in God. He knew he wasn't worthy of it in terms of what he could earn. He couldn't earn God's salvation. He couldn't earn God's love. But he knew he was loved. He knew that he had a sense of personal worth. And here's, here's my question to you. Do you realize that you are valued? Now, now, think about this. Whatever you value, you treasure. Right? Whatever you value, you treasure. And so when you treasure something, you look after it. And you are God's treasure. So if God really treasures you, do you think he's not going to take care of you? Now, here's what tends to happen is we tend to look at people and we make comparisons all the time. And we say, well, God's going to take care of so-and-so because I've heard them pray and they're amazing prayers. Or he's got an amazing voice. He's in the worship team. God's going to take care of him. Or that guy's in full-time ministry. God must really love him. 
And we sort of make these comparisons in our head, but the truth is God loves all of his children. You are of great value. Oh, that was, you could do better than that. Come on. If we're going to do it, let's do it. You are of great value. And, and I think sometimes we come under this tremendous attack from the enemy. Well, God's going to take care of him, but he's not going to take care of you. It's like, it's like, because you go through things in your life where the enemy sows lies, where he sows an understanding, where you doubt the goodness of God. And, and you can experience tough times. David had an, a, a cave in Adullam. Uh, Joseph was down in Egypt and, and in Potiphar's house and then in a dungeon. You can have seasons where you think, oh, well, am I loved? Does God take care of me? But the problem is that's a chapter in the book of your life. It's not the book. It's a season. It's a period. And so you cannot measure the goodness of God just based on a single chapter of your life. You've got to look at, you've got to take the long and the bigger picture. And so I want to say to you this morning, never doubt that you are loved. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, he paid the highest price so that you could be part of his eternal kingdom. He loved you and he's given himself for you. I love it what it says in the book of Isaiah. It says that our names are inscribed on the palm of his hand. Isn't that beautiful? You know, when, the, when Jerusalem was run over, overrun, and the captives were taken away, what the Jews did was they either wrote the word Jerusalem on the palm of their hand or they did a little picture of the city. And so all the diaspora Jews, all the ones who were taken out of Jerusalem when they were in the land of captivity, you knew who a Jew was because it was on the palm of his hand, the city of Jerusalem, either as a picture or as the word, Yerushalayim, the city of peace. They, they literally, it was the only time the Jews ever tattooed themselves because they weren't allowed to do that. But they did it as exiles. And so God took what they did and he said I've inscribed you on the palm of my hands of course it points to the cross where Jesus suffered and died and he has permanent scars as proof of his love for you and me you are of great value just turn to somebody near you and say that to them you are of great value do you know I I went through a season of my life where I, I had real struggles with this thing and uh, I remember just trying to deal with it. And when you deal with this stuff, it's always a process. You, you get moments of breakthrough. You get moments of revelation. But it's really a process where you find out that, that God loves you and he's going to take care of you. But I, I told you that story a few weeks ago about my daughter and the dress. And, and it really helped me understand, you know, God is concerned with the detail that he's concerned with really providing and taking care of and we just need to trust him. And I, I remember coming to that place where I realized, no, actually God has called me, therefore he's lo he loves me and he's going to take care of me, he's going to take care of my family. By the way, let me just say something here about kids because I hear this a lot, so I want to knock this on the head. Kids are never a problem. Just want to say that, okay? They're not a problem financially, and they're not a problem emotionally, and they're not a problem in any other way. They're a blessing from our Father in heaven to teach us what it means to trust him. 
Now, I often hear young people saying, yeah, we're not going to have kids for the, for the next two or three years because just, we just want to get ourselves established. That is good, natural, Gentile thinking. Okay? God loves kids so much, he will provide what you need regardless of when you have them. So when we got married, I'm not kidding you, we, we, we said, oh, well, let's trust the Lord. You know, how dumb is that? We said, <laughs> you know, when it came to contraception, we said, we'll trust the Lord. I later found out you can't trust the Lord. I'll tell you why, because he loves kids too much. So when people say, oh, I'm just trusting the Lord when it comes to conversation, you're in for a big surprise. He's created biology to work. And so uh, I found out, you know, what, what the Lord says, there's some things you can't trust me with because I'm committed. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? God doesn't work against his own nature. So, so, so I, I discovered that very quickly. So after six months of marriage, we had our first child. And we really, didn't, we really couldn't afford it. But here's what I discovered. God loves kids so much, we had provision coming to us. Do you realize that? So I just want to say there's, there's all kinds of ways of thinking that we've absorbed from the world that we just need to get out of our head and understand God loves you and God loves it when you decide you want to have a family. And I'm not putting pressure on anyone to do this, by the way. I'm just saying don't let the world's thinking get in the way of doing it. That's all I'm saying. Do you get that? Yeah, it's fun. And uh, here's the thing that I like. <laughs> I know there's a lot of unconvinced mothers here because you've got two-year-olds and three-year-olds. And I realise there are moments of stress. Listen, I didn't know I was capable of murder till I had children. You know what I'm saying? When I say, do that one more time, I'm going to kill you, I was absolutely serious. And they knew I was. You know, one of my friends used to say this to his son. He said, I brought you into the world and I can take you out of it. <laughs> if you've ever seen the, Russell, the comedian Russell Peters talk about his own father, it's really interesting because he's a Canadian. He's a, Cana a Canadian, an Indian-Canadian comedian. So his father was an Indian immigrant. And, uh, and, and his father used to say to him, Russell, <laughs> if you don't do what I say... <laughs> I will kill you and make another like you. <laughs> but overall, overall, you know, Jesus said this in, in John's gospel. He said, look, there's travail, there's sorrow when a woman is giving birth, there's sorrow. And then he says she forgets the sorrow for the joy of the child that is born into the world. Do you get that? So yeah, there are moments of stress. I get that. I get that. But overall, that's what I'm, I'm talking big picture stuff now. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. And actually, I'm glad we had kids when we were younger because now we're empty nesters. We get to go to New Zealand. We get to leave our kids. It's so, it's so good. Yeah, we're off. See ya. The house is yours. You're paying the bills. You are of great value. Here's number three. Your faith will always inform your priorities. Jesus said this, Solomon in all his glory is not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more would he clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. 
And so your faith is demonstrated by what you prioritize in your life. Your faith is demonstrated by what you prioritize in your life. I'll tell you this. If you give me your diary and you give me your bank statements, I'll tell you where your faith is. That's all I need, your diary and your bank statements, because I can see where you spend your money and I can see where you spend your time, and that tells me about your priorities, and that tells me what your faith is. Now, you don't have to give it to me, but give it to somebody. Give it to your spouse. Let your spouse see. Somebody you trust, talk it over with somebody. Your faith will always inform your priorities. So from a young age... My wife and I decided we're going to put God first in our finances, so we tithed. We gave 10% of our income, even when we didn't have a lot of money. We decided we would, do, we would make that a priority. Now, some people, you know, they, they try to take me on on this subject, and I, I quite welcome it because I taught in a Bible college for eight years, so I know this stuff pretty well. But people try to say to me, oh, isn't that Old Testament? And I say, yeah, it was. What about the New Testament? I said, well, the New Testament's actually more, not less. So when you read the book of Hebrews, here's what it says. 13 times in the book of Hebrews, it says that the new covenant is better than the old. 13 times. So Jesus is better than Moses because Moses was a steward of the house and Jesus is the house. Jesus is better than Aaron because Aaron had a priesthood that has a past from father to son. Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. It never passes to anyone else. He's a priest forever, Psalm 110. Jesus is better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Uh, Angels are servants, ministers, flames of fire sent to minister to the heirs of salvation. But Jesus is the savior. He's the son of God. He's better than the angels. His blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel because the blood of Abel cried out to the ground when Cain slew him and it cried for revenge. Jesus' blood cries out for mercy. So his blood is better than the blood of Abel. His resurrection is a better resurrection because unlike every resurrection that took place in the Bible, all those people died again. I've been to Cyprus where Lazarus was buried the second time. (laughs) Lazarus, who lived, who died for four days, is buried here. It's a little plaque. You can see it in Cyprus. That's where he was buried the second time. Everyone who was raised to life in the Bible died again. But Jesus ever lives. He's part of the new creation. So everything about Jesus in the book of Hebrews is better. A better resurrection. A better covenant. Having better promises. Better, 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 better. So here's my question. If everything is better, how can our giving be worse? If it was 10% in the old, I I just want some Christian to explain to me how we can have a better covenant and then give less. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It just means now in the new covenant, you can actually be extreme and outrageous in your giving if you want to. That's why Jesus challenged the rich young ruler. He said, well, give away everything. Come follow me and you'll have riches in heaven. That is so extreme, isn't it? If you want to be New Testament, there it is. Hello? Do you know, I challenge people from time to time, and I can do this because I've done it. But from time to time, giving has to go beyond what you can handle to what you can't handle. 
from time to time. Now, you can't do that every week, otherwise you can't do anything. But from time to time, God will challenge you, give it all. So I remember one time where I got my month's wages, God said, give it all. So God, how am I going to survive for the month if I give it all? Trust me, do it. As an act of obedience, do it. So we did it. And supernaturally that month, we got money and we got food and we were taken care of. And I learned something about priorities. I learned something about faith. And so listen, if, if you are like, your, your mind is like an accountant and you're always working it out. Well, I can afford this and I can afford that. Sometimes you've got to do something you can't afford to do. To show that your faith is in God and in his bigness to take care of you. Now, if you go the whole of your life and you never do anything extravagant or adventurous like that, I say you've missed out. I say you've missed out. I'm not talking about every week being like this. You give out of your abundance regularly. That's what stewardship is. That's what tithing is. You're giving out of your abundance regularly. But from time to time, you just need to go crazy. Just need to do something extreme. Just from time to time. You dare to ask the Lord, have I got permission to do this? Uh, and be careful because God loves those kinds of questions he loves those kinds of challenges but you need to you need to understand the bigness of God for yourself if it's something in your head where in the back of your head you're saying I I can manage this if you can manage it that isn't faith you've got to be at a point where you can't manage it and you're trusting God do you get that I remember my wife and I um, I, t- I was just turning 60 uh, at the time and we wanted to buy a house and we, we tried several times to buy this house and in the end there was no mortgage company that would give me a mortgage because I was 60 years of age. Most mortgages are 25 years. They won't mortgage past 70 years of age. I couldn't find anyone who'd give me even a 10-year mortgage. Nobody would do it. So we went through all this process, cost us loads of money. We ended up really being really discouraged. And then one day I was praying and I felt like the Lord said to me, I've got a house for you. And it was like, Lord, I've been down this road, you know. It's okay, I don't need a house. He goes, no, I've got a house for you. And I started to pray into that. And I said, well, Lord, where's this house and how do I get it? And then I I spoke to somebody in our church who was a mortgage broker. I didn't know he was a mortgage broker. And I told him my story. I told him my situation. He said, leave it with me. I'm going to try and do something. He came back to me. He said, I found one mortgage company in the UK who will give you a 10-year mortgage. There's only one, there's a few now, but two years ago, there was only one company in the whole of the UK. And we did all the maths and I found a house um, that was really, really nice. And my wife and I were looking at this place. She said, oh, I'd really love to have this place. And we did all the maths based on my income, based on everything. He said, you can get that house, but you need to give me 23,000 pounds cash. That's about $50,000 cash. So I said, Lord, my wife really would love this house. Listen, I'm all for twisting God's arm. And I, and I said, you know how she's sacrificed. We've moved 27 times in our married life. 27 times we've moved in 38 years. For the last 15 years, we didn't live in our own home. For the last 15 years, we've rented homes. Okay, that's, that's what it's cost us to say yes to Jesus. And I'm not complaining. 
Really, I'm not, honestly. It's been fine. The rented homes were beautiful. But we're just at that stage of life where it would be nice. Do you know what I mean? It would be nice. And so uh, this guy said to me, well, you, you need this amount of cash. And so I went away and said, Lord, I would really, really love to buy my wife this house. Please could you give me this money? In Jesus' name, amen. And that was it. That was my prayer. No sweating about it, no losing sleepless nights or anything like that. I went to church the following Sunday. And by the way, my wife and I prayed this together. We didn't tell a living soul. Apart from this mortgage broker who's in our church, he was the only guy I knew. Nobody on my team knew. I didn't share it with anyone. We didn't write a newsletter hoping that people would give us money. We didn't do anything like that. We were just trusting God together, the two of us. I went to church on Sunday. A guy came up to me and he put an envelope in my hand. And he said, oh, I just want to give you this. And I thought, when you get a brown envelope, it's either a letter of criticism of something you've done wrong as a pastor, or potentially it's a blessing. And I wasn't sure, because he was a bit of a difficult character. <laughs> so I, I, I waited till I get, got, got home. I thought, you never, re- by the way, if you're in ministry, never open an envelope before you're going to preach. Never do that. Wait till after the message, then go home, then handle it. And so I went home, opened the letter, and there was a check in there for £5,000. Right about $10,000. How many of you know my faith went from here to here when that happened? Just from here to here. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. £5,000. Only, you know, now all I need is £18,000 cash. I've got £5,000. So I started to pray again and said, Lord, thank you so much. And then this guy said to me, he said, don't you have an endowment mortgage or something like that from the past, an endowment policy? And I said, I thought I did, but I can't find it. So I went online and I looked. Now, all of you who are accountants in the room, please don't judge me, okay? Please don't judge me right now. Every accountant in the room. So I'm going online because I'm not sure what I'm paying for. And I'm looking at all these different companies I'm paying money to. Now, some people can't believe when I say this, but I just, you know, I just money goes out and that's all I know. So I'm looking at these different companies. So I rang one of these companies and I say, hey, I'm paying this amount of money every month to you. Is, is that for an endowment policy by any chance? He goes, no, that's a life insurance policy. If you die, we take care of your wife. I said, oh, that's good. <laughs> and he goes, I'm so glad you called. He said, we've been trying to contact you because uh, we've been writing to your old address. Yeah, I said, I've, I've moved four times since that address. So I had to update them with all my security details. Everything spent a long time doing it. da dee da dee da and uh, got it all settled and another week went by and then I got a phone call from this company again this guy oh Mr. Prother we've been trying to get hold of you for two years I said yeah I said I've I've moved many times I actually spoke to one of your colleagues last week he said oh who's that I gave him the name he said I've never heard of him I said well it was all to do with my life insurance policy and I updated he goes oh no that's not your I'm not ringing about your life insurance policy I'm ringing about your endowment policy and I said I have an endowment And he said, yeah, yeah, you took it out 25 years ago. He said it matured two years ago. I said, really? He said, yeah, we've been trying to find you for two years to pay you. (laughs) I said, how much is it for? He said, 18,000 (laughs) pounds. I got my 23,000 pounds cash. And then he said this to me, because we've taken two years to find you, you get a 500 pound bonus. Thank you, Jesus. He always does exceedingly above and beyond all that we ask or think. Do you know what I'm saying? 
So at 60 years of age, I was able to buy a house for my wife. Isn't that amazing? You know why? It's about, it's about priorities. We've lived putting the kingdom first. And that's my final point. When your priorities are right, everything is added. What, what everyone else is preoccupied with becomes your bonus. Don't you love it at work when you get a bonus? Do you get bonuses here? You don't get bonuses. You should be in London. You get a bonus every Christmas. But a lot of companies do that at a special time. You get a bonus. Or if you're, if you're the employee of the month, you get some prize. You get some bonus. And here's what Jesus is saying here. He says, seek the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. In other words, if I prioritize the kingdom of God first in my life, everything else that people are worried about gets added to me. When I graduated from Bible college, I was 24 years of age. I got married and all my friends who graduated said, oh, I'm going to get a job and I'm going to earn money and I'm going to buy, I'm going to get into the housing market quickly. And I was working for the church on a pathetic sum of money. And there was no way we were ever going to be able to afford to buy a house. And I remember saying to my wife, I'm not sure you'll ever be a homeowner. Could you, could you be married to a guy like that? And she said, yeah, no problem. She said, it's kingdom first. We have a home, great. If we don't, it's okay. Because you can't take it with you. And so here we were in this situation. So fast forward five years. After five years, I ended up starting my own print and design company. All the church bought a whole load of equipment, print and design equipment, and nobody knew how to use it. The church had a vision to start a print and design company. And I said, well, let me do it. It'll be my company, I'll use your equipment, I'll do everything for cost price and I'll start a business. And I'd ne- nobody had ever taught me how to print or do anything like that. I just have an entrepreneurial spirit. So I went to a company who were a print and design company in town who had similar machinery to the stuff we had. And I said to the guy, if I work for you a day a week, can I watch how you print? Can I learn? I'll work for you for free. He said, great. So I worked for him for one day a week and I could stay as long as I want. I'd just watch him work. I'd watch him do it. I said, can I try doing that? He, he taught me and, he, and I just, he apprenticed me. After a year of doing that, I, I got it. And then I launched my business in 1980. I launched a print design company. Within five years, I had eight people working for me. I was printing for every major missionary organization in the UK, including the Billy Graham Association. Within five years. I took every person in our church who was unemployed. I said, I'm going to give you a pathetically low wage, but I'm going to train you how to do print and design. And after a year of a bad wage working for me, and I've trained you, you're free to get a job somewhere else if you want to, earning good money. And I took all the unemployed people in our church and I trained them and I developed them and they became highly skilled. Some of them stayed for two or three years because they just wanted to learn more. And they all went and got really successful jobs. I didn't realize this was the way I was wired. Nobody said to me, this is the way you do this. And so after we'd worked for five years with that, I was able to put down a deposit on our first house. It was a council house that we were living in. It was owned by the government. And here's the amazing thing. Margaret Thatcher came into power and she decided all government houses need to be sold off 33% below the market value. 
So after five years from graduating from Bible college, I bought my first house and all my friends who had got job and invested in their jobs and invested in housing, and that was their priority, that was what they were working for. Five years later, I had a house that was two years old at a lower mortgage than any one of them who had successful jobs. Hello? You see, it gets added. If you seek the kingdom first, it gets added to you. Now that's my story. But you need a story. And the only way you'll get your story is if you make a decision, the kingdom is going to be first in my life. Because when you establish the right priorities, the rest is added. It's added. Jesus said this to His disciples, nobody who's left family or brothers or sisters or houses for my sake, he is going to get a hundredfold in the kingdom. He's going to get more brothers, more sisters, more parents. He's going to get more houses in the kingdom. But you see, you have to position yourself in that place where you let it go. You can't hold on and let go at the same time. You've got to let it go and trust in this Father who says He loves you, He cares for you, and you are the most valuable thing in His creation. You are of more value than the sparrows, and He takes care of them. You're more value than the lilies in the field, and He takes care of them. But we've got to make a choice. What will be first? The kingdom and the king? or something else. I've discovered in my life, if you can't let it go, it's become an idol. <laughs> if you can't let it go, it's already become an idol. Let God be first and everything else will be added. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.